1: Coming up on this week's show, play Windows 98 games on your Xbox Series X.
2: New Dreamcast VMUs are coming. And we take a look at Rare's handheld history with Paul Makacek.
1: the retro hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our amazing friends at bitmap books now one of their books i think you should check out a gremlin in the works celebrating one of britain's best software companies from back in the day and featuring interviews with legends like tony crowther sean southern ben daglish and lots more as well you can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 335, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Robbie Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, where each and every Friday we take you back in time to the good old days of video games, reminiscing about those days we used to rent games for our Sega Mega Drive from Blockbuster, maybe getting on your BMX on a Saturday down to your local shop to get tapes for your Commodore 64, maybe those endless summers in the seaside arcades. See, if I think of summer as a kid, just arcades was such a big part of it back then.
2: I was outside playing, Dan.
3: <laughs> yeah. I
2: know what you mean.
1: But I, was like, sat
3: in, I was sat in a dark room. I was, you know, <laughs> playing playing Super Nintendo and Mega Drive. I'm with you, Dan. I'm with you. Well, that's
1: the thing, because at the moment we're going through a heat wave here in the UK. And apparently this weekend it could get up to like 40 degrees in parts of the country. And um, I've pretty much been locked inside all day today in my air-conditioned studio. Uh, I went out for a little bit to do something we'll talk about in just a moment. I was reminded of a joke that the, um, the late comedian Bill Hicks said, the reason that he didn't like going to the beach is because he goes to the beach and everyone there has got bronze skin and white teeth and he's the opposite way around. He's got bronze (laughs) teeth and white skin. That's me. Well,
2: well, you always love to rub it in with your air con. We've had to turn our fans off because of the, the interview at the moment. So yeah. Um, but it has been hot and, uh, We've been posting a few pictures of stuff that we put out, and it has it has, of course, sparked the debate, which always happens. If you're retro-brighting or you're trying to reverse the yellow in a kind of machine, is it is it damaging it? Is it is it going to melt or, or kind of cause an issue? What what have you been doing with your stuff, Dan?
1: Well, you actually inspired me to do this the other day because I know you got your hands on a, a classic Mac, yes, and the keyboard is ra- rather a yellow
2: up. Mac as well. <laughs>
1: And you sent me a picture of it just out in your garden in this like baking sunshine that we had the other day. And I thought, because I did a video recently on my Sega Dreamcast, and my Dreamcast, I don't know what happened to it, but it is so yellow. It's like, you know, it looks like it was in like a smoker's home or something. It's literally been in like a cupboard for about 10 years. I don't know why it got so yellow. But I thought, well, I'll give it a try. I'll just put it out in the sunshine Because there is that method. I mean, there's kind of different methods of reversing the yellowing. There's one where you put peroxide and everything on it and cover it in cling film. But also this new one that really, I think, you know, uh, Perifractic, Christian, he did a video on it a couple of years ago. And it's kind of blown up since then. That you just put your systems out in the sunshine without any chemicals. And that slowly reverses the yellowing that happens on these old plastics. And I've got to say, I left my dreamcast out there for about four hours and I posted a picture on our Facebook page. It made a massive difference. Yeah, it
2: really does. And I, and I think it's interesting because some people say, oh, do it with chemicals. It's easier. Some people say, oh, you, you could damage the machine and stuff like that. I, I think it's, it's up to the individual what they kind of do with the machine. But uh, being a sunny day, I, I have been putting my machines out and I haven't had the same effect that you've had i've not had it work as well but i don't know if mm. it's the type of plastic yeah. i was that gonna Apple say used.
3: dan dan when dan sent those pictures over i was like he's just swapped that out he has <laughs> that's just a different
1: he's dream put, he's put oh, a filter on it yeah.
3: he's put a filter on it or something but um yeah yours didn't look too that much better did it uh really Rabby. no no I, i've not risked it myself but it was interesting looking at all the comments and uh even one of the comments was just like, oh, so you're telling me I've spent years and years and years of keeping my games in the dark to stop them from yellowing. We now put them outside to make them yellow. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, apparently, apparently the cause is also the cure. Yeah,
3: so it was, So I was just like, oh yeah, that is, that is a good point. But, um, you know, the, Dan's proved there is method in the madness and some other people were showing us pictures. Um, a fella called Simon commented, which I loved, he had his NES sprawled out as if it was sunbathing, like with the controllers and everything on top of his shed which I just loved, <laughs> but, but, even closer to the sun.
2: Also be aware that I, I think, Dan, you warped something a few years ago, didn't you, uh, when you were doing some like, retro-brighting and stuff. So it is, you've got to keep an eye on it. It is, yeah, it, definitely. It is kind of, don't use your like, one-off rare machine that's uh, you know, irreplaceable or something really expensive.
1: And depending on where you live as well, I mean, if you live in an even warmer climate than than we have at the moment, I imagine I've seen pictures on Facebook groups of like melted Commodore 64s in gardens yeah. in uh, you know in Vegas and stuff if, like if that. If you're so living aware. on the
2: equator, then yeah. don't, um, get your machine out.
1: So even though us nerds have been uh, cowering inside playing video games, at least our consoles have been out enjoying the sunshine over the last couple of days. Now, we've got a really good show for you this week. Of course, all the big retro and tech stories to talk about from over the last seven days in just a moment. And of course, every week on this show, we bring you a veteran of the industry to give us their story and give us a bit of an insight on the games that they worked on. And this week, you guys have got a really interesting interview that you've just recorded.
3: Yeah, this was really, really fun. This was with Paul Makachek. You know, we've we've interviewed quite a few guys from Rare before, and uh, Ravi worked his magic and got Paul on, and uh, he sent over his kind of credentials to me. And I was like, wait, these are all Rare games. <laughs> like, these are all amazing games. And we essentially, obviously... As in the
1: company Rare, not the, hard to find. Yeah,
3: Rare as is. in the company Rare, sorry. And um, yeah, man, like we got some really, really, really good stuff. You know, and we kind of took a really deep dive you know, with his time spent with the NES and he worked on games like Beetlejuice and, you know, the kind of relationships that they had with Nintendo and LJR um, and also kind of his transition into working on the Game Boy and really interesting stories there and his involvement and in kind of getting the Battletoads games up off the ground, which I thought was really, really interesting. So it was a really fun interview. Yeah, it was kind of like
2: a bit of the handheld history and kind mm-hmm. of... um you know, Rare have done a lot of big console releases and stuff. It's always interesting to see their handheld ports because they were very different from the console releases. And, uh, you know, they always push technology, and he really did. And he was coding before in a, in Assembler, and he was, um, you know, doing stuff on the Amstrad previously. And uh, like you mentioned, uh, they had some third-party companies that they worked with like, um LJN and stuff like that. So it's it's really interesting to actually look into Rare's history of the kind of handhelds. And they even, even at one point, developed their own handheld, which is a pretty fascinating tale before the Game Boy.
1: And uh, the Oric One, you talked about that as well, which is a system that, again, we're not that familiar with. So it's always interesting to kind of talk about systems that we haven't covered much on the show before.
2: Yeah, totally. Like, um, really interesting, the Oric One as well. And uh, we have a good chat about it.
1: So a special guest looking at Rare and their handheld history, Paul Makacek coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, before then, first half of the show, of course, we round up all of the big retro gaming and tech stories from the last seven days. This one is quite interesting. Now, maybe like me and uh, you as well, Joe, you've got a brand new... Xbox Series X, gracing your home theater setup. Of course, you know one of the most cutting-edge consoles around right now. Very hard to get hold of as well. I mean, I think I was looking for about about eight nine months until I got hold of one.
3: Yeah, it took, you're about the same. It took me a year to get a hold of one. But what was really disappointing was there was no Microsoft Windows 98 on it when yeah, I booted it. I was it hoping for that as well. Yeah, and I was really disappointed um, that it wasn't on there. But it is now, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. So. This is a really interesting video and an article by a guy called Alex Bataglia on Eurogamer. And he's managed to get Windows 98 running on an Xbox Series X. And not only that, but also he's got 3DFX Voodoo graphics emulated on here too. (laughs) So that means he's running loads of those kind of late 90s legendary games like Quake, Half-Life, Turok as well, Command & Conquer. So this is a really cool video and something I wasn't aware of that you could do without actually modding
2: your Xbox. I I know you boys like to buy these modern consoles and then
3: run like Pong on them. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Use use the
2: the the A-core power to do that.
3: The first thing I played on my Xbox Series X was Contra, you know, the Contra collection. (laughs) So I was playing NES games, uh, on it, but now, yeah, I could play Unreal and uh, you know Quake and stuff like that on it. So how how, how is this achieved?
1: Well, you know, originally there was that um, video that I think MVG did, didn't he, when he showed the the developer mode. Yeah, to yeah, get
2: and, and, and that's the difference, isn't it, between the new yeah. PlayStation and the Xbox? Is that the Xbox is a lot more open with the uh, developer mode, and that means you can do
1: a lot more hackery and emulation and stuff like that on it. Well, this method here that he does is actually, you don't even need the developer mode. And I'm actually surprised that this works. I'm not sure whether it's an exploit or maybe this is kind of sandbox. But what he does is he gets RetroArch running on the Xbox. Okay. And the way you do this is by literally just going to a website and downloading it. And then you can run it. You run the code directly on your Xbox from the dashboard, which to me kind of feels like <laughs> that probably shouldn't be allowed, on a console yeah. and maybe something that microsoft will patch at some point it
2: sounds like a custom thing but then i guess they must have some kind of signatures in there that that you know the xbox sees and then goes oh this is an all right piece of software because if you're running it out of developer mode that's that's pretty insane it seems to be a yeah. DOSBox pure on a, on retroarch core so it must be retroarch that actually has the um you know the the, the signed code or something
1: right crazy yeah, but the fact you can just download this from a website seems... I mean, cause that's generally how... You know, if you're going to hack, for example, like soft mod yeah. a Wii And it's not, a not on 3. the App
2: Store, is it? Or, or, no, 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 it's yeah. always
1: at the browser exploit, so uh, <laughs> it feels a bit, a bit dangerous that you can do this, but you can at the moment, apparently. So you get DOSBox running via RetroArch, and then, I mean, because you're running DOSBox, that means that you've got the capability then of installing Windows 98. And there's a... Some compromises you've got to make as well. I mean, he said it took him quite a while, so you've got to kind of find the ISO file and then he FTP'd it over to his Xbox. I love
2: that. Um, that you, you can't actually like put the ISO in or, or load it, up. you have to FTP it across. Which I've used FTP and you know, it can be quite slow. Um, so that's a really interesting method of kind of
1: doing it, yeah. I mean, particularly because you've got an optical drive. On an Xbox yeah. X, but um, you can't use that, apparently. Um, but after a while, I mean, you watch his video, it's um, it's about 15 minutes, but kind of condensed down. He's got Windows 98 running on there. Um, and actually, it runs pretty well. But the only thing is, RetroArch doesn't currently support USB mice. So that means any games that he plays and also using Windows 98, you've got to use the analog sticks on the Xbox controller, which, you know, is a... Obviously, I mean, for, for FPS games, you mentioned that Turok... That was kind of, you know, he was used to playing that on the N64. Yeah. So it didn't feel that weird using the Xbox controller for it. But also because, I mean, it's running DOSBox, the DOSBox fork that's on there, DOSBox Pure, has got a virtualized Voodoo accelerator. So really, in terms of performance, he said it's pretty much on par with a Voodoo 2 graphics card. So you can play like, you know, Glide, OpenGL or... Direct 3D titles, they all work fine on here and actually run, you know, up to the standard of a voodoo too. Well, it's it's
2: interesting as well because it's all based on the CPU. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was 12 teraflops of GPU, which is just insane computing power, isn't used at all. So no. um, <laughs> the, 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 basically the graphics section is, is not even used. They're just hammering the whole CPU with this. And uh, of course that's going to run well because the CPUs are... Crazy fast on this, but I just think it's it's really funny because you're setting this up, you're limiting yourself to not having a disk drive, not having a mouse, and also you know uh, you're just doing it in this kind of closed c- CPU environment, so you're not even using the whole power of the Xbox, but you're running Windows ninety eight. That's the key.
1: Yeah, I mean you could play another you know, new rebooted version of Quake that's on the Xbox Game Pass, but you know where's the fun in that? Yeah. There's
3: also, there's also a reboot of Turric. HD version of it as well. Like, I think all these games that he's running have all got, you know, modern versions of them. But, like you say, where's the fun in that?
1: (laughs) I think one of the comments here on Eurogamer says, Has science gone too far? (laughs) See, stuff like this, it's just because, you know, there's no logical reason why you'd ever want to do it. You do it because you can. You know, it's, it's always interesting to see stuff like that. And, you know, something that you think probably shouldn't be possible on a modern console with, you know, how locked down they generally are. So if you want to check out that video guide, I've got a feeling maybe Microsoft are going to kind of patch yeah, it. You know, reboots. I it's didn't simple.
2: want an Xbox Series X until I saw this, and now this is the killer app for me. I'm
3: going to go out and get one. <laughs> You're going to pay 500 to pounds for a winner. Yeah, game. and then the, yeah. Next, and the next day, Microsoft patch it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So if you want to check out that video and the article, I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, we love the Dreamcast. I think you know everyone in the Retro community, we always rave about how incredible the Dreamcast was, even though it wasn't the biggest commercial success in the world. Over the last 20 years, the Retro community definitely taken it under our wing and, you know, showed the Dreamcast a lot of love. And it's incredible how many, not only games are still released on the Dreamcast, but also hardware as well. And I love this. A replacement is coming that really soups up one of the Dreamcast's most innovative features. We're getting a new VMU called the VM2. This
2: this is like the VMU that I've always wanted. Uh, What do you think of it, Joe?
3: I think it looks really cool. Obviously, well, I say obviously to kind of describe it. The main kind of thing of it straight away is it, it looks more modern, but we've got the nice kind of illuminated screen on there. We've got a nice backlit lcd screen which i think just brings it into the 21st century straight away it just modernizes it so much but it's coming from dream mods who have been doing quite a bit for the dreamcast over the last couple of years they've actually done a wireless bluetooth dreamcast controller before called the dream oh yeah i remember that um which they did in 2016 so this looks really really high end and you know they've actually been working on this for quite a while and you can go on their website and kind of see the development of it over the last kind of couple of months
2: so I, i remember the vmu it was like a it promised a lot, but it didn't really kind of fully deliver on what I thought it would be when I was a kid. I thought it would be like you could put it in and then you could take it out and play your games separately. Uh, this actually looks like it's got internal storage for mini games, Um, which is 50-plus games as well that you can have on there. Yeah, so, and so it that, acts as a memory unit as well.
3: So, so there was a couple of mini games on the VMU. You know, there was the Chow Garden game from... Uh, was it sonic adventure one or two i can't remember which one it was on but wait it was essentially like a tamagotchi but for your chows from the game i'm not too sure how many more games were on there but yeah like you say there's going to be 50 to 60 mini games on this um as well as a higher resolution screen micro sd slot so it gives you obviously a much bigger capacity obviously the memory card kind of part for it it's got pc connectivity on there and also like external charging so it's not necessarily going to charge off the controller
2: and a longer um,
3: battery as well,
2: which is long, pretty yeah, useful. Yeah.
3: yeah, much
2: longer yeah, battery. that's
1: to me, is the main thing about this, because every time I turn my Dreamcast on, if I haven't used it for even a couple of weeks,
3: beep, yeah. <laughs> every time you turn that, that bloody noise. Um, we don't have any sort of like concrete kind of information of when this is going to come out. The guys over at um, Dream Mods have said, you know, they probably will do a crowdfunding for it, um, mm. potentially looking at around $100 for it, £100, $100. Um, so a little bit on the expensive side. I mean, how much do they cost now, VMUs?
1: I, I
2: saw one in CX for like 20 quid today.
1: Well, they're saying here on this article on their Dreamcast junkyard that um, it, when you adjust in, for inflation today, the original VMU would have cost you $75 in 2022 oh, wow. money.
2: Oh, okay. and, and, you know, I never really when I played, I never really paid attention to the VMU. I had it in. And then I'd look down. I'd be like, "Oh, there's a virtual tennis
3: logo on there." <laughs> or,
2: <laughs> yeah. or, you know, most games only going did that, on. didn't they? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Most games only put like the, the games, the logo, logo on or some there. of
3: the Resident yeah. Evil games put how much ammo you had left or how much health you had. But you just get so used to just going into your inventory and looking on the screen, like on your actual, mm. the actual game screen, than the VMU, like rather than like looking down at your controller all the time. How many bullets have I got? How much health have I got? So. Very, very cool concept I was for the VMU, but this VMU, the VM2, not the VMU2, sorry, the VM2 does look really interesting and, you know, it does look really high end.
2: It'd be a nice little uh, MP3 player, wouldn't it, as well? Yeah, Yeah,
3: it it, it would, but I'm not too sure if it's going to bring, you know, much more to the experience, the Dreamcast
1: experience. I think it's just having something that, yeah, again, the battery life is going to be a lot better than relying on Mm. those uh, CR2032 batteries that the original munched through, but also, I mean, I think you're right about the fact that th- that kind of looking away from the main screen method of gaming, it's never really worked, has it? And obviously the Wii U tried that as well, didn't it, with some games where you'd be playing on, on your TV and there'd be like a map or something yeah, on the, yeah, the or, controller. Yeah, or like
2: interactivity, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, but I, I can't remember ever really. Again, I'd often play games and be like, oh, I forgot the map was down there. You know, if you are focused on the TV... Yeah, the, the only use
2: that I've seen that's been really nice on the Wii U was like when you playing Wii U sports and you put it down and there's like a golf ball on there or something, you know, you're using it as kind of an extension. But that whole idea of having another unit that does another thing, this was really like the the start of it, wasn't it? Yeah, so
1: um, very cool to see new hardware coming out for the Dreamcast in over 20 years since it left the shelves. So we'll keep an eye on that, and hopefully um, we'll be able to get those before the end of the year. You know, one thing that
2: they've mentioned is uh, memory management. So you can connect it to a PC and uh, Mm. share, like, backups and restores and stuff. I wonder if there's going to be sites with, like, people's saves on it, you know, full saves of games or saves in certain spots and stuff. There
1: already is. Yeah, Yeah, and there's quite a few Dreamcast community sites.
2: People kind of, like we'll be able to restore it and manage them and add them in and stuff, which is pretty cool.
1: We can even load DLC from it too. Awesome. Um, There are still some sites, you know, the kind of archive the old Dreamcast sites from the early 2000s where you can download um, DLC to your uh, VMU, which obviously if you can connect this via a USB cable, imagine you can just kind of squirt that down the cable and then have that in Dreamcast. So definitely a few good uses for it. And I think having that SD card back up in there as well, you're not relying on that, you know, battery to keep... Or he saves him that alive. So, uh, yeah, it looks a nice little addition, actually. So we'll keep an eye on that story. and We'll put everything we know so far in our show notes as well. Now, the Evercade, obviously a great little system. And we've done episodes all about the Evercade with the, the crew before, haven't we? did one a couple of years ago. Yeah, I've got a little Evercade console. Lots of fun. Um, my father-in-law got one as well, actually, for Christmas after he played on mine. What I like about it is I generally play my Atari Lynx games on my Evercade, on the Lynx collection. because I mentioned before that, you know, my Lynx hasn't got the best screen anymore and obviously got that problem again, batteries, you know. Something that's definitely improved over the last couple of decades. The Evercade, I think that's really its strengths, these amazing bundles that they've got, which generally have all been kind of console or arcade-based until now. But now we've finally got the first computer collection for the Evercade. This is interesting because
2: I think you're totally right there. The Evercade is all about... Having a group of games that have been selected for you, that are really good in a collection form that you kind of load up and put in the cart, and it's 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 like the opposite to Retro Arch or something to me, um, like where people have thousands of these ROMs and stuff. Like this is legal. It's a, a, you've got a legal copy of the game. You know, it's it's really interesting and and seeing that they've picked these C sixty four games, uh, fourteen of them. Um, have they picked some good titles, Dan?
1: Well, that's the thing I like about the the Evercade collection. I mean, obviously they're going to be limited by games that they can license, but it definitely feels more like they're, they're a created collection. Yeah, that's exactly the that's word. Yeah, it's like
2: created or chosen for you. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it's like, but I know when you're looking at Netflix and you've got that endless doom scrolling list of stuff and you can never pick, you know, you can never pick a title. You're just scrolling forever. And I think... Having this small selection is really valuable, actually, and it's a total different way of gaming, and I I quite like it.
1: Yeah, so this is um, the C64 Collection Volume 1, so that would suggest there is more on the way for the Evercade that bundles together 14 Commodore 64 classics. There are some really popular games in here as well, but um, some of them are not quite the obvious ones as well, which I quite like. You know, there, there are certain Commodore 64 games that, you know, international karate plot, you know, we've played them all a million times before. There are a few, you know, slightly more obscure ones and some very well-known ones on here as well. Um, I was quite pleased to see that Impossible Mission was on there.
2: Another visitor. Stay a while. Stay forever. I thought <laughs> <laughs>
3: For, that, <laughs> i was like what's going on <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was the commodore 64 sid chip doing speech synthesis that blew my mind when i heard that as a kid yeah man um so possible missions on there you got summer games and winter games you got jump man on there as well and um, obviously summer games and winter games kind of like you know collections where you compete against each other a bit like california games that kind of thing uh you got the movie monster game lee uh, where you take on the role of uh, Martial Arts Master Lee. I wonder who he's based on. <laughs> uh, you got a game called Marauder as well, Stormlord, Battle Valley, Alley Cat, which is a game I'd forgotten about, actually. Streets Sports Baseball that I've never played before. So, I mean, again, it's not kind of the the obvious Commodore 64 games that you've probably played, like, you know, 100 times before. It does feel more like, a, you know, a list kind of been selected, and especially having these kind of sports games in there as well. That kind of feels like... Um, on brand for the summer. Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of going around friends' houses and playing California doing, games. Like and some
2: of, of these are multiplayer as well. So like um, yeah. uh, the Verse console, you know what? Uh, yeah, the VS. Yeah, VS. Yeah. You'll be able to play like with your friends on these, which is pretty awesome. And some are single player as well, but it's good to have that option in there.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I just think it's really cool. The fact that they're, they're doing all these different collections for the Evercade as well. It's like, it's not limited to a certain subset of gaming or a certain console or style. It kind of seems to be another variety, yeah. Of like games that you can get like on they
2: it. even had some of the modern remakes on a, a disc, like Mega Cat Studios and stuff like yeah. that. So you know, having these old school ones and the arcades, it, it's really good. And I'm sure they'll do a great job of uh, actually having them running because, from what I've heard, stuff runs really well.
1: Yeah, so it is on their website right now. Um, looks like you can buy it now. Uh, the other way to buy links on there. The good thing about Evercade games as well, you can often get them in like game and places like that you know, on the high street, which is quite cool. So it looks like it's available at the moment, so if you want to get hold of that, the uh, Evercade Commodore 64 Collection Volume 1, looks like it's available now. Now, I think last week, when I mentioned that, you know, we hadn't had any new patrons for a couple of weeks, it's quite nice to see a couple of people, because we appreciate right now, you know, the whole world. It's gone a bit crazy, hasn't it? And, you know, the cost of living crisis is on. We understand that a lot of people haven't got a lot of disposable income right now. But obviously, we do have a Patreon that we run for this show, um, really just to help us keep the lights on and make sure that we can keep bringing the show out each and every week. So we always hugely appreciate any support that we get. Uh, Been a bit dry on Patreon over the last couple of weeks, but we have got a few new ones this week. So we'll give them a mention in uh, the Hall of Fame in just a moment. But of course, if you do want to back us on Patreon, you do get lots of perks as well. And I'm sure everyone's heard these by now, but we do have some special little perks exclusively for our patron. And the thing is, we're always looking at them too. So, you know, if there's anything you kind of think you'd like to see from us... Or any suggestions, or maybe something you think we could do on Patreon that would, uh, you know, maybe make you want to join the community. We're always open to ideas as well. We want to make it a really good experience for everyone, don't we? Totally,
2: and uh, we're not going to do a calendar, but um, <laughs> we will, we will make it <laughs> awesome. Like, uh, there's a huge backlog as well now, actually, of a well, I'd say back catalogue of um, episodes that we've done for the Retro Hour After Hours, and uh, you know, you could probably sit there and how many episodes are there now, there 25 episodes of
1: our Patreon Sony podcast.
2: Oh, you can sit there for a whole day.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. You could <laughs>
2: <laughs> listen to the retro hour after hours. So that's you you a lot don't of You do not joke about content. that.
1: I've met people before who've, uh, you know, truck drivers who go like across Europe and listen to our show for like, you know, two or three days straight in oh, their trucks. Wow.
3: That's crazy. Yeah. You could either watch a series of 24 or listen to the after hours, <laughs> the after hours yeah. of the 25 episodes. Know. And um, then we also awesome.
2: have a um, retro hour meetups which are absolutely awesome everybody meeting up and chatting about all the systems and it's a bit of an education that is and we also have an ad free episode so if, if you do backers there's a uh, so many benefits
1: yeah and also we give you extra patrons only content on a each week show as well. You know, instead of adverts, you actually get 10-15 you know, minutes extra stories each week too. So if you'd like to back us on Patreon, you get those perks. But obviously the main reason that you're doing it is just to make sure that we can keep bringing you this podcast each and every week. We've done it six and a half years now. Um, We couldn't do it you know, by paying for it ourselves. So we really appreciate any support that we get. And of course, for backing us on Patreon, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in in the world of retro gaming, and that is. <laughs>
2: Hall of Fame!
1: The Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you to our latest supporters. Thanks so much to Pete Barfield, Rob Claridge, and Paul Duback. To all backed us on Patreon over the last week. We massively appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join them and join our community, all the details to join us on Patreon are on our website at theretrohour.com. And if we get new patrons, you get to your Ravi Singh as well. That's <laughs> <people> <laughs> we <are>. Maybe <laughs> that's one we to get you a couple of weeks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've not. So our special guest, Paul Makachek, coming up, getting some uh, inside stories from Rare in just a moment. But this is quite cool. Now, this seems to be a console that I've always been curious about, but actually I seem to be reading quite a bit about over the last couple of months. And this is the 3DO M2. Now, of course, we had the the 3DO console from the 3DO company. We've done episodes all about that before, you know, where Trip Hawkins on talking about it and RJ Michael, if you want to check those episodes out, you know, we did those a couple of years ago. I've always been interested in the 3DO because it was a system that when I was a kid, I mean, I remember that coming out. What was it like? Six hundred dollars, I, I think that got six seven hundred
3: dollars, at... something like that. In like what ninety three?
1: Yes, so way out of the price of most average gamers. Um, didn't get to play one until much later. I got my 3DO probably in around two thousand nine. Interesting system, and it was kind of that weird era between like you know the the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo and the PlayStation when we got all these you know consoles that were around for like a couple of months and then they vanished. But there was meant to be a successor to the 3DO that was kind of on par, if not a bit more powerful than the PlayStation called the M2 that was set to be released in 1997. But, you know, because 3DO wasn't doing that well, and by then PlayStation pretty much completely owned the market, it got cancelled. But recently, there have been not only a couple of these prototypes that have sold on eBay for like ridiculous prices, but if you've ever been interested in the very small catalogue of 3DO M2 games... Turns out now you can play all five of them using MAME.
2: Now that's really interesting that you say five because um, I'm, I'm reading here that a magazine reported in 1997 uh, that's Ultra Game Players that there were nearly 80 games that were in mm. development for the M2. So maybe those five have been out there, but who knows what um, could come in the yeah, future? So, we know so, what so, happens so, with leaks. <laughs> so
3: some some of them were arcade games, so like Evil Night. Um, is one of the five but that was an arcade released game it was a
1: konami wasn't konami, yeah, yeah.
3: K- konami yeah. light gun game which actually is a game i absolutely loved playing as a kid in the local arcade and it wasn't until only a couple of years ago that i literally went through an entire list of every single light gun arcade game that ever came out to try and find what game it was because i didn't know its name and now here it is being emulated on the m2 <laughs>
1: So you're the only one of us who's actually played an M2, then, Joe.
3: I've not. It wasn't the M, it was the arcade game.
1: <laughs> so well, that, that was the M2 hardware in that arcade. Oh wow! Oh wow!
3: Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. I was going to say it was an arcade called Smiling Sam's in Nottingham. If anybody can remember that, um, but yeah, it was one of these really unheard of games, and there's hardly any YouTube footage of it. Um, so to see it here on this video, I'm sat here quietly having my mind blown
1: right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the actual M2 products. I mean, there was two prototype home consoles that were released. And then the, the motherboard was actually licensed to Konami. who put it into an arcade system, which would have been the one that you played. And they had five games that they made for it. But apparently because it was running off CD, so now you've got an arcade machine running off a CD-ROM, you've got those long load times, and apparently the failure rate was quite high as well. And then after that, the M2 was used in a ATM bank machines and in Japan in, in a coffee vending machine. was where it ultimately ended up so shoot the zombies to get a latte (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) i'm not sure whether you can emulate a coffee machine using this mame emulator but it is quite good now apparently if you want to get hold of this um you can run it on mame now there's i'll put the links in the show notes as well um and there was we talked about this recently a, a youtube channel called Video Game Esoterica, who actually managed to get hold of a few previously unseen games. I think these are these five that, you know, previously we knew about, but no one had them. And actually did a video. Actually, I think there's 20 games he shows in his his video that are just kind of previews of it. So it kind of looks like now this stuff is getting out there as well. But you do need quite a beefy PC because apparently this is not that optimized. And um, if you want to get them running at speeds that are kind of playable you're going to need quite a high MPC yeah, to do it's it. it's
2: probably early days, right? Like, yeah. you know, just starting that. But the fact that this is actually being emulated and can be put in the hands of people that don't have it, I, I think that's pretty awesome. And, you know, they might optimize it over time and stuff. I guess there's like, how have they done it? They probably reversed engineered it or like referenced well, the, the machines guess, yeah. that are out there. You know, Uh must be a tough thing to do.
1: Yeah, see, There are prototype consoles out there. I think one went on eBay for about five grand a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, whether someone got one of those and just kind of dumped the ROMs, you know, and emulated it, or it might be the Konami arcade units of which, you know, there were some out there. So again, though, it's just, you know, systems that we read so much about. And I remember watching the tech demos of the M2 and you can still see these on YouTube. And I'm not sure if this was ever a finished game or whether it's in any kind of playable state. The one that always sticks out in my mind and I don't know if you guys have seen it. Is there was like a it looked a bit like a first person shooter, fully three D rendered, and it had kind of this morphing character, like you know, that came out the wall, reminded me a bit. Do you remember the Michael J. Fox movie, The Frighteners? Yeah, yeah, it looked a bit like that. So kind of old monsters are like you know coming out of the wall and everything and out the floor. And I always remember thinking that looked incredible. Uh, I don't know if it ever saw the light of day, but that's always ever since I saw that, I've been really keen to play on. A 3D LM2. So being able to, you can know, actually sample a bit of the library, I think, is really cool on yeah, main. And
2: it does look so like on par with like PlayStation graphics and stuff when you when you're seeing this. And uh yeah, it's a pretty awesome piece of history, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. So that is available to play on main right now. Now, while we're talking about really cool things that the retro community have done, what about this little video that um you need to watch? This is a Nintendo fan who's made a tiny portable Super Nintendo and a TV. For the sixteen-bit fan on the go, yeah. So this is called the SF
2: One Mini, and it's the uh, Super Famicom. But um, it, the way that he's done it, I am going to butcher this pronunciation. Is uh, he he recently showed a, a kit which was called the uh, Chofamitsuku DIY kit, basically, and it, and it was a way of doing the uh, Super Family Computer, and um, that that was the uh, Super Famicom. And it's 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 kind of recreated in this little D- DIY kit form, but you need to do some changes and adjustments. Now, this machine, he's done an absolutely beautiful job of it. Um, what what do you guys think of it?
3: I I think it looks really really cool. The fact that this has been like you know made by a fan, it looks like a full retail product. Like you know the kind of end re- end result. Like it really reminds me of those like mini Astro Cities that Sega put out last year where it's like the all-in-one kind of like arcade unit. This would just be like the next step in mini console development. (laughs) You know, where it comes to a mini CRT as well. Obviously, it isn't a CRT, but the style of it, I think it looks really, really cool. The way he's got it running, you know, got all the innards and everything in there, I think is really cool. And then I just think it looks really, really awesome with the cartridge in the top. You know, no, I just, I, I'm I just sure.
2: Think... Didn't, didn't you remember there were like these TVs back in the days, CRTs that did have consoles built yeah, into it, like, the... like a kind of crossover, I remember. There's a
3: GameCube one, wasn't there? Yeah. There's the Sharp. Oh, what's it called? The, the Sharp. Mega,
2: mega PC or something? Um, no, that was the PC from crossover. People are screaming
3: at me right now, but there was this, the... It, I don't think it came out in the UK, but in Japan and America, the Sharp something, and it was a TV which had an NES built into it. Yeah, yeah, and, and this it really dro- reminds me of and that. And it had the drop-down yeah. panel at the bottom, and like, the controllers pulled out very similar to the Vectrax, and you know, they had the cartridge slot there and stuff like that. So yeah, it is really, really similar to that, um, that kind of style, but obviously this is just, you can't use it as a normal TV or anything like that, but the way he's done it, it just looks so smart, it just looks really clean, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, he's he's basically got this little LCD monitor. He's 3D printed the uh, casing around it, and he's built in a HDMI converter as well. Um, I, I can't say his name because it's in Japanese, um, so it's it's quite hard to <laughs> actually say. But um, yeah, it looks fantastic with this video, and the fact that you know this DIY kit can be converted into this, and I guess he could probably release all the files publicly as a kind of 3D printing thing so people can do it themselves. You know, it does look really compact and awesome.
1: Yeah, I love the fact as well that he's got stereo sound in there. I mean, it looks like, imagine a small 5 to 6 inch CRT, but obviously it's a flat screen in there, an LCD, with a couple of controller ports underneath it. You put the cartridge in the top of it, and, you know, he's got a picture here, the thumbnail on YouTube, of the super nintendo controller next to it which is about half the height of the the screen isn't it so Mm. it really is a portable i mean the entire thing probably looks about the size of a gamecube yeah 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 Yeah, with the screen in the front so really it means you can have a portable super nintendo and it's got some kind of you know nice mod cons on there as well uses a usb-c for power yeah which means you can probably
2: use a little battery pack and, and add it on and then it is you know truly portable
3: you just crank that out on the train or on the plane. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I really want one now.
1: The looks you would get. So uh, if you want to check out that video, you know, it just constantly amazes me. The genius people that we have in the retro community and the ingenuity that they come up with. you know, if
2: you do kind of pull that out, you're going to have to blow in the cart really loud. So <laughs> everyone looks around and thinks, what's he
1: doing? And <laughs> then put it in yeah so very very cool we'll link up that video and everything else we talked about all the stories you don't have to google around for them you'll find them all in your podcast app or in our show notes at theretrohour.com right then next we're going to get some inside stories from rare with our special guest paul makachek next on the retro hour podcast
0: temple university is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the u.s through hands-on learning
3: opportunities
1: and world-class faculty temple students are prepared to soar in their careers schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit
2: you're listening to the retro hour podcast and we're here with paul Makacek from rare how are you doing paul i'm doing great thank you very much for inviting me awesome it's great to have you on and uh it's kind of like going back, what was your first video game experience? I
4: was getting into computers in the very early 80s. The oldest game that I can think i played was probably something like Scramble and Defender on a BBC Micro. But I had access to research machines, 380Z, and I think the 480Z prior to that, and I was programming them kind of before I'd actually played a game, oh, wow. which is probably weird. And I was like... Twelve. I'm That's, that's 12.
3: interesting, that's interesting because it's usually the other way around you find somebody plays a game and then they think oh how can I make this myself so how, how, how did that come about was it just you know through sheer interest of just the amazement of a computer or was it a friend who got you into it or something?
4: I'll be honest with you I was very lucky I, I went to a very good school and it was well resourced and right back in the early 80s uh, most schools kind of didn't have computers and we had a whole computer room. And we had two masters at the school. One was a maths master and the other was a physics master. They'd both been co-opted into teaching computing, um, computer programming. The thing was, um, they had been co-opted, not because they had been trained to teach computer programming, but because they had computers at home and had an interest. And they were the only people in the school who knew anything about computers. So the school had a computer room, which was largely populated with these research machines, uh, devices, which really didn't play video games. Uh, Hence why I was uh, learning to code before I saw a game, really. And there was a small group of probably about 10 or 15 people in the class. And there was myself and one other lad that were just complete geeks. And we taught ourselves assembly language when we were like 12 or 13 years old. And our teacher didn't want to ask us any questions. He'd rather ask all the people that weren't going to correct him when he <laughs> when he gave us false information. Uh, so I sat there quietly most of the time, and then I got on with my own project. Um, it, it, it was a weird experience. There, there was no formal learning at that age. You could go to uni, obviously, and, and do um, computer software engineering courses. But when you're 12 at school and you're still several years away from your O-levels, which is what we called GCSEs back then. No one really knew if you, you know, if you were older than a teenager, you had no idea what you were doing with a computer. So myself and another lad just got on with it. basically, And we taught ourselves at
2: home. Well, I, I heard you uh, learn assembler on an Oric one as well. Um, yeah. What did you think of that system and how did you get a hold of it? Cause it was kind of like a, a spectrum alternative, wasn't it? Yeah. By uh, Tangerine computers.
4: I know. I know. Uh, Uh, Look, it was completely a practical thing at the time. I desperately wanted a computer at home because I was stifled by the the short, like, hour-long windows I could get in the computer room at school. And my housemaster, who was a bit of a Luddite, kept trying to ban me from the computer room because I spent too much time in there rather than doing sensible things like learning about Henry VIII, which would have been hugely useful in my future career, I thought. So (laughs) I ignored him. And, uh, and I saved up my pennies. Uh, it was literally pocket money. And I got to a point when I can afford an, uh, afford a computer. And the Oric had just come out. And I do appreciate the Spectrum was probably, in hindsight, the better bet. But the Oric had uh, what looked like a better keyboard. I just couldn't imagine myself. I would played on a Spectrum by that point, And I couldn't imagine myself trying to write a game in assembly language on those rubber keys. I have now just alienated a whole bunch of people my
2: age. we've had so many programmers on that said you know they were developing spectrum games on other systems just just because of the keyboard basically yeah yeah that's a, a perfectly fine argument um yeah the the auric machines were there many games out for those um there were a few i mean it wasn't massively
4: lived i mean the original auric one lasted a little while i think tangerine were having a lot of you know business troubles financial troubles they brought out the atmos which looked much better. It looked more professional, I and mean, it's all relative. But if you go back then, it actually looked like it had a proper keyboard on it. It was, uh, in many ways, I think it was effectively the same thing inside uh, 6502, similar amount of RAM, uh, usual stuff back then uh, for an 8-bit computer. But I wasn't focused on, I think I had one game. I had a game called Zen on One, which I absolutely loved. It only had about four levels. It was a space shooter, um, and I absolutely loved playing it. And, uh, you saw, sort of, you had this sort of big green furry alien that would fly around the screen. You'd shoot it and it would turn into four smaller furry aliens and you shot them. And I can't remember what happened after that. It was 40 years ago. But you know what? I, I've just got a technical edge. My dad was very technical and I very quickly, it was, it was that thing back then. And I, I think we missed this ever since the eighties ended. I think we really missed this. You could buy a machine, take it home, switch it on. It would come on instantly. And there'd be this flash flashing inviting cursor there and you could type an instruction from the book that came with it and it would do something immediately and if you put a line number in front of it it would remember that instruction and you could write several of these and suddenly you had code and a whole generation of people learned to code that way and you know it 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 triggered the video game industry loads of studios in the uk including rare including codemasters just down the road. Uh, it was just incredibly inviting to do that. Obviously, some of us very quickly got to the point with, with, with the, the basic language most of these things came with, where we realized that whilst they were very easy to put things on the screen, it was very limiting in terms of performance. And at that point, you then go into the murky world of hexadecimal numbers and poking things into memory and creating uh, what we termed at the time machine code.
3: From from that point, how did you kind of like, at what point did you think like, you know what, this could be a career? Did that ever kind of cross your mind or were you just no. kind of going with the flow?
4: So this is it. Uh, you're a young kid. You're completely hooked on trying to learn how to write computer code at a very low level. And when I say <laughs> low level, I, I actually had no tools on the Oric. What I was doing was I had a book with a 6502 instruction set in it. And what those instructions Uh, translated to in in terms of hex numbers. And I had pretty much nothing else. There were a few small snippet examples of code, and I knew nothing else. So what I did was I'd I'd write some instructions out on a piece of paper, draw lines showing the algorithm and where the jumps went. I would then sit there laboriously converting them into hex, copy those hex numbers into a little basic program that wrote them into memory, and then ran it. And nothing would happen because it was a very small program and it didn't do much. But eventually, I sort of worked out how it worked. And I had the Oric for about a year, year and a half. And I was just, you know, I was writing short little programs this way and getting stuff on screen. But it was limiting in, in terms of the scope of what I could do. Um, and then the Amstrad CPC came out. And that was a whole other ball game. And I wanted to buy this, but I had limited pocket money funds. So... My dad managed to sell my Oric and get me the Amstrad on the same day. And very quickly after that, I got a an assembler, a little dev package called MaxAM, which was on a ROM cartridge that you'd plugged in the back of the CPC. And you could boot straight into a text editor, save out your source code files, assemble it and run it, and I was off. Although, admittedly, a bit more slowly initially, because I just jumped from 6502 to Z80 processor. So I had to learn another processor architecture. Uh, again, with extremely minimal help, but I was off at that point, and it was amazing. I, I just loved creating stuff, and so the focus was on writing software. And I, you know, I, I did more and more, and the projects I was doing were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually, I just went, "Well, what am I actually going to do with this skill?" And I thought, "Well, I, you know, I have played some games. Oh, I'll, I'll write a small game." So I wrote a game. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you, you're a young teen, and you've written a game. You know, what do you do? Well, you don't tell your parents. What you do is you start (laughs) contacting people in London and near Reading and a bunch of other people. And when I say contacting, we didn't exactly have the internet in the early mid-80s. So I was putting audio cassettes with my game on and pleading letters I typed up carefully into jiffy bags and sending them off with my pocket money to publishers. And some of them ignored me. Some may have got lost in the post and some of them responded. And I ended up sitting in publishers' offices 15 years old whatever my parents had no idea where i was i was reading contracts i was signing contracts i'm not a lawyer i was making up as i was going along oh wow that's pretty
2: amazing like, i i was just wondering were you like a, a fan of the uh precursor to rare as well ultimate play the game and did you play any like ultimate titles and were they inspiration to the stuff that you were doing
4: so um, this is probably a fairly strained analogy. But when I was growing up, there was the concept of your Kennedy moment. You remember exactly where you were when you heard that JFK got shot. Mm. Well, as I say, this is about to be a strained analogy. I remember walking into my sixth form study, uh, which I shared with a friend. Uh, I might have been in the lowest sixth form at the time, so about 17. And we had we had a spectrum in there and and a TV. And he was sitting there playing a game and I looked at it and I, I, I was just gobsmacked. My mouth dropped open and I said, is that the new Ultimate game? And it was Nightlaw, which obviously didn't look like anything else at the time. I know Ant attack had been out prior to that, Isometric and all. But um, Nightlaw was just, wow. Okay. And for me, that was a bit of a Kennedy moment. I remember exactly where I was when I saw that game. And I was already a massive fan of Alt- Ultimate. Uh, huge, you know, I, I played Saber Wolf to death and, and and a few others and then you know some of the other games that came out obviously alienate was like a reskinned thing and i love that nightshade i thought going to the scrolling isometric was great and the thing is that you know i i, I said that i've been approaching publishers and getting games published i'd had a few games published by the time i joined rare uh, a couple of years after i left school um so three years after this night long incident actually and all of these publishers were offering me, offering me jobs. You know, I was I, mm. I, I, I was coming out of the blue with a finished game saying, could you publish this, please? Um, yeah. And they were looking me going, do you want a job? And I was sort of quietly, privately saying to them, politely saying to them, um, well, if, if you don't mind, not at this time. But what I was actually saying was, I don't want to work for anybody else at all. I, I, I wanted to do my own stuff, right? But all right. I had at the back of my mind that if I was ever, ever going to work with anybody, it would be ultimate because no yeah. one else was good enough. And I'm sorry if I've just offended a ton of people. Uh, but uh, it, to me, at that time, Ultimate stood out. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know there was loads of other great stuff out there, but I, I just thought that, that they did a, a block of games, basically from Attic Attack up to, ooh, I might include Pentagram, maybe Gunfight Gun Pentagram era. That, that 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 body of work in that era. And it was just absolutely stunning. And lo and behold, I, I ended up working at
3: Rare. So, how how did that kind of come about? So you you know you're like what you're twenty, like kind of seventeen to twenty, doing freelance work. You know, sending sending jiffy bags and stuff, which I absolutely love. Turning down roles and stuff, which is just is just crazy. Like I, I mm-hmm. love that confidence and stuff as well. How did you then end up with Rare? How did that happen? Because obviously. At that point, it's kind of like a, like you say, not so much a dream job, but it's in the back of your mind, like that'd be really cool. How did that come about?
4: Yeah, that's actually an interesting story. So uh, it's funny that you describe it like that. Um, I might seem confident these days. I'm old and grumpy now, but um, (laughs) uh, back then I was actually extremely shy, and I, you know, I I was probably socially awkward. I guess Um, that's maybe a reason why I like staring at computer screens for a long time. Or the flip side is. Maybe I was socially awkward because I stared at computer screens for a long time. I don't know. So I'd been doing all this work. I was burning the midnight oil at home. My parents had no idea what I was doing. I spent several years hiding in my bedroom and occasionally they'd slip a sandwich past the door or something, you know. And, uh, you know, there were nights I, I would get into a furious programming session and I'd keep going. I had no idea what was going on around me. And then I suddenly hear the birds singing. I'd look around and it was daylight again. I'd just been up all night without realising it. So what happened was, I wasn't achieving any massive success. My games were going Mm. out, but nothing was going sort of ballistic or anything. And I was getting a bit down about that. So if you thought me putting Jiffy bags out when I was 12 or 14 or whatever was a a bit of a leap for your average young teen, I then did something completely random. I wrote to a magazine letters page and basically Mm. said, I'm starting a studio. Who wants to join me? (laughs) And I put my, my parents, we didn't have cell phones back then, so I put our yeah. house landline phone number in this advert, it was, sorry, in this letter, and I sent it off. I posted it. I, just, I remember standing at the post box going, here goes, and I threw it in. And then my parents started getting a lot of weird and random phone calls from a bunch of very <laughs> bizarre people. And they were really dodgy phone calls. And uh, I hadn't been getting a lot of phone calls up until that point. And my mum kept coming up to me and said, there's somebody on the phone for you, and he sounds a bit odd. Um, and I go down and quickly weed it out. And most of them were, I'm trying not to say the word crazy. I'm sure they were lovely human beings. Anyway. Eccentrics. Eccentrics, eccentrics. yeah. Eccentrics. Yeah. Let's go with eccentrics, yes. And uh, I- I'll be honest with you, my mum would have absolutely killed me if she knew I was doing any of the stuff I've just admitted to. Uh, and she's still around. <laughs> so if she ever hears this podcast, uh, well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit older now. She, she, she can't tell me off at my current. Well, she might. And then one day I got a phone call from somebody called John And he said something, and he he sounded less crazy than, sorry, less, uh, what was the word we agreed on? Eccentric. Eccentric. (laughs) He sounded less eccentric than the other eccentric, lovely folk, who I hope never hear this recording. And he said a couple of things to me, and I stopped him. Yeah, He actually said his full name, and I haven't said that yet. Uh, And I stopped him. I said, sorry, who are you? And he said, I'm John Rittman. I wrote Batman for Ocean. And I went, This is the bit where I'm trying not to swear. So think of a word Mm. I might say after O. Mm -hmm. Blimey. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I'll go with the English thing. Uh, Oh, blimey. Jolly Roger. Jolly hockey sticks. It's John Ritman, And I suddenly felt incredibly embarrassed uh, because I knew obviously who John Ritman was, but the penny hadn't dropped when he first said his name. And, uh, he said, uh, I, I can't remember how the conversation went, but he says, you're starting a studio. I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> and long story short, we became friends. Uh, I remember he, he, so he lived in North London, I was Southwest London, and he came over one day. You know, we sat in my room, I showed him something I was working on at the time, which did eventually get released, but it was in a doggy state. So I felt really embarrassed to show it to him at the time. It had a really, really slow, clunky engine in it and everything j- j- juddered on the screen um but we had a chat and everything and he didn't hate me uh and we 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 became friends and then you know I started visiting him in london and he introduced me to um to bernie drummond who did all the art for their games uh, i have to say at this point um very sadly obviously i'd like to mention that bernie did actually pass away a few months ago yeah incredibly incredibly talented guy and I really, really enjoyed working with him. And you know, we only worked on one project together. And you know, that was that was in 1987. So going back a bit. But what ended up happening was I really, really wanted to write an isometric game because I was just Night Law was my thing. And all my previous games, I'd done everything on. I, I designed them. I wrote the software. I had no artist, no other help. So I did all the audio. I did all the art myself. And suddenly, I was introduced to an artist. And eventually uh, Guy Stevens, who did John's audio as well, all all of his music. Um, And he got to a point where I just said, look, I want to write an isometric game. And John said, look, I haven't got enough work for these these two chaps. Why don't they help you? So we did a deal. And um, I ended up writing a game called Superhero, which took about a year, uh, which was a 3D isometric game. Um, where I sort of married up the the puzzle, static room, isometric thing of Nightlaw. But when you came out of the rooms, there were scrolling corridors like Nightshade. I tried to do the two things, and I was incredibly proud of it by the time I'd finished. It was just a major technological achievement for me. Plus, it looked and sounded awesome because of what Bernie and Guy did. I was gobsmacked. Every time Bernie sent me a disc through the post, I was just wow. Absolutely Mm. wow. Everything. I just i loved it you know and you know it's possible some of some of them were cast off things that they'd rejected from head over heels which they were writing at the time first time i went to uh, went to john's house to, to to meet bernie um john was showing me head over heels it was he was writing it they were writing it at the time
2: we i was wondering like um you created titles for the spectrum and amstrad cpc when like the game boy came around was it kind of easy to jump into the game boy world and when you first started with Rare, mm. was there a kind of established connection with the Game Boy already, or, or had it had it not come out by then?
4: There was no such thing as the Game Boy when I joined Rare. Okay, long story short, I took Superhero to Codemasters, had a meeting with the Darling Brothers, they published it. Mm-hmm. While we were going through the pre-publishing stuff, John said to me, oh, by the way, because he knew Tim and Chris Stamper at Rare, uh, he said to me, I'm going going up to RARE. Do you want to come with me? I, I ended up going up to North London on the train, jumped in John's car. Bernie was there. We all went up to RARE. Uh, I met the Stampers, met some other people, showed them Superhero, which was finished at this point. They interviewed me. I think John put in a good word for me. They gave me a job. That was July 1988 when I started. Okay. Yeah. Um, and at... When I first started, um, they had an arcade board called the RAS board, which was, basically, which was a Z80-based system. So I came straight off writing on Spectrums and Amstrad CPCs, all Z80, went straight onto the RAS board, no problem at all. Just settling down with the new dev tools, blah, blah, blah. Right, We only did some prototypical work and mucking about on that. Uh, and then very quickly, I, I got given a game on the Nintendo NES. And uh, so I had to jump back to 6502 and I had to quickly relearn that again. I hadn't done it in about five years. Okay. Uh, did a couple of games, Super Off Road and um, Beetlejuice, with Kev Bayliss doing all the artwork and Dave Wise on the audio, uh, as usual back then. And then we switched to Game Boy. There's an interesting story about the Game Boy. So the Game Boy came out in 1989. So I'd been at, I can't remember, it was unveiled at the CES show, the Consumer Electronics Show which mm-hmm. is where video games were all showed off at that point before E3 came along in the mid-90s. Um, and there, were, there used to be two CESs a year. These days, there's only one in January, but there used to be the winter and the summer CES. Um, so I can't remember which one it was, um, but Tim Stamp had this mad idea that we should try and make a handheld, a handheld machine out of this arcade board, the RAS board. Now, you can imagine a great big circuit board that goes into a, a, an arcade machine.
2: Yeah, and, like a thing or yeah, something.
4: Yeah. And Tim said, let's get it into the palm of your hand. And we're looking at him like, what? So he bought a vacuum forming machine. Uh, and he'd also brought back a little three inch color portable TV from Japan when he'd been out there on holiday or something. And we cannibalized it. um And long story short, Peacocks, who's still at Rare today, soldered all the chips together and they're sort of free floating. There was no circuit board, it was highly unreliable. We shoved it into a case. It was quite large, but in the palm of your hand. Ran it off a bunch of AA batteries, which probably only lasted about five minutes before the arcade board killed them. Um, And then I wrote the demo software for it. And then we did what what you would do at this point. You would give it a name. And we called it the Playboy because (laughs) we thought that was a non-litigious and fun name to call our great big handheld gaming rig that we could play an arcade game for less than five minutes on your batteries um and then tim went off to the ces show with it and you got bear in mind back then uh, we lived in the days where there was no internet uh, we really didn't have cell phones properly back then the only yeah. communication was a fax machine or if you wanted to make a transatlantic phone call you had to book it with the telecom company first okay so so tim went off to ces for a week came back we had no idea what was going on and he said i'm going to show this to nintendo we said to him did you show it to nintendo he said no they seem to have released this funny little thing with a blurry green gray screen what's it called it's called the game boy and i'll tell <laughs> you what uh, we were initially disappointed but wow what a success and they bundled it with the best game in the world ever mm-hmm. to release that machine with I mean, that brought video gaming out of people's houses, out of people's bedrooms. Yeah. People took that yeah. into schools and offices, and it was known as the funny little machine that played the block game. And some of those people then went out and actually exploited it by buying more cartridges. Utterly incredible. Yeah. So so Kevin and I had just done a couple of um, NES games. We got into Game Boy for uh, a reason that I can come back to if you want me to in a minute. But to be honest with you, the Game Boy was a hybrid between what I'd done on Spectrum and Amstrad and what I'd done on NES, because the Game Boy architecturally was very sim- similar to the NES. It had a character map screen, even more limited palettes, obviously, uh, pretty much the same sound chip. I mean, it was very, architecturally, it was very, very similar. And the only real significant difference from an engineering point of view was the processor was Z80 again, instead of the 6502 clone that was in the Nest. Um, and I was straight back into my comfort zone, moving to Game Boy on Z80 because I was... I, you know, I'd written a ton of games in, in Z80 and published them on home computers a few years earlier. So actually, transition to Game Boy was dead easy. And the story I've got around that, if you're interested,
3: um, yeah. So yeah, tell us about that. How did how did that transition? How did how did you become the Game Boy guy?
4: Okay, so I have to be careful here because I might upset somebody. Uh, well, two people uh, basically. Um, so the vast majority of stuff that was happening at Rare back in the late '80s and early 90s was done by people actually in in the Twycross studio. However, there were one or two people outside Rare that were also sort of doing things for Rare, and some of those were released and some were not. And while Kevin and I were working on Super Off-Road and then Beetlejuice on the NES, there was a a wrestling game that was happening out of house. And we'd heard on the grapevine, it, it wasn't going spectacularly well. And we just finished Beetlejuice. And, and you know, this project was about nine months in, is my recollection. Uh, and basically, Tim came to Kev and I and said, look, uh, do you know what's going on with that game? And we said no. And he said, look, would you pick it up? And my response to Tim was, well, if it's not going that well, A, I, I, I've never looked at anyone else's code before, and I'm terrified. I just don't want to do that. Um, but you're telling me it's not going very well in the first place would it not just be easier if you wanted us to take this game in house just to start again? And Mm -hmm. he agreed. And then I asked the fateful question. I said, what is the deadline? And Tim said, Saturday. (laughs) I didn't need to ask which Saturday. And this was like a Monday. I think we were having the conversation. And before I got a chance to say, are you sure? He said, look, if you can do it in three months, we think we can stall the the publisher, which was a claim. We think we can stall a claim that long. Bearing in mind this thing, as far as a claim was was concerned, had already been in production for like nine months at this point. Um, and you're and suddenly no restarting
3: it five days before. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah,
4: as you do. And uh, Tim agreed. So Kevin and I burnt the midnight oil, and we immediately jumped onto this system that we'd never seen architecturally before. I picked up a Game Boy manual and started staring at it, trying to work out what it did. And simply because of the sheer familiarity between the, uh, the similarity of hardware architecture between the Game Boy and the NES and um, my Z80 experience, I just dived straight into it and we wrote a game. Um, the only thing I did not write was we, we had the... step. On the NES, we had what was known as the tune routine. It was it was the music driver, which Chris Stamper had originally written, and all of the NES games used the same driver, okay? Mm-hmm. And somebody, and I don't remember who it was. It might have been Chris Stamper. It might have been Chris Sutherland. I just don't remember who it was. Somebody did a Z80 version of it and gave it to me, um, and it was the only code in that game I didn't write. Everything else I coded. Kev did all the artwork. Dave did all all the audio in it. And we wrote WWF stu- Superstars in three months and one week. Uh, exactly. I'll be honest with you, we worked extremely long hours to do that. Uh, we banged it out and it sold 400,000 copies. We were not hated at that point.
2: Amazing. And that that had a two-player link option as well, didn't it? Which was uh, yeah, quite
4: was- cool for a wrestling title. Yeah, that was fun because that that was a bit of a technical challenge. I'd never had to... you got to bear in mind that... that, that, that we're talking about extremely low level systems in those days we you didn't have anything where there was an operating system and an api that you you could boot into and use there was nothing you know mm-hmm. what you do is there is there is uh, an address in memory where the processor starts running instructions as soon as you switch it on and the very first instruction at that address is whatever you the, the um the programmer, we saw, we didn't call ourselves software engineers, the computer programmer at Rare, you would put, or, or anybody else, you would put uh, instructions into memory and that's what would run. There was nothing else there. So when it came to doing the serial comms, you pretty much had to hard code it yourself. Um, there was incredibly low level support uh, from the hardware for sending bytes between two machines. And it got a bit more complicated when they brought out the four-way adapter as well. And um, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was a pain. Because you are pushing the hardware, and you've got to, you've then got to have this sort of interrupt-driven communication system that all the other things you are doing can't trip over. It, it, it needs, nice to be, needs to be nicely timed, and even though you are not really sending much information for a two-player wrestling game, it was still a bit of a bit of a nuisance when you are trying to rush through a project in the time frame and under the circumstances I've described, and you've never written a serial communication system before. But hey, we got through it, and you know, it, it didn't go horribly wrong.
3: Sounds very. Um don't know how to describe it, kind of guerrilla style, like just kind of having to do it yourself with no kind of real development kits and stuff like that. Like, was there much of a rela- relationship between Nintendo and Rare at this point? Or were you guys, just like you say, just ripping stuff apart and, you know, figuring it out for yourself?
4: The, the famous story was that Tim and Chris approached Nintendo originally um, when Rare was first set up in 85. Uh, I, I Sorry, Rare was set up in 85. I don't remember exactly when they re- approached them and said, mm. can we develop for you? And at that time no Western studio. Nintendo didn't work with anybody outside Japan, is my understanding. Yeah. And they basically looked at Tim and Chris. They had no idea about the success of Ultimate back in, in the UK because Nintendo didn't have a footprint here. So uh, they basically said, no, go away. Uh, or, or or a very polite Japanese version of that. Um, so Chris took an S apart and looked at it and he was able to reverse engineer it. He worked out it. it was a 6502 chip. He could work out what the other chips were around it and he quickly worked out what it was. And then he wrote a game Uh, and he took this finished game back to Nintendo and said, here you go. This is what we did without an instruction manual or support from you. And they were so impressed. Rare became the the very first Western studio that Nintendo would work with. Okay. So Rare had already released a, 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 a number of games on the NES by the time I joined in 88, in the summer of 88. And we continued to do so. I was employee number 17 at Rare. And out of the previous 16 people, seven of them were computer programmers. So by the time I joined and I got a game, that meant each programmer had one game. So 17 Mm. employees, eight computer programmers, that means eight games were in production. And they were all for the NES. And most of them were for other people's IP. We we, we weren't doing a lot of original stuff back then. There was a lot Mm. of bread and butter games. Just write a game quick, get it out there, bring some money in, rinse and repeat.
2: I was going to say like LGN. What what were they like? Uh, what was their attitude and relationship with Rare like? Because I remember a lot of the LGN titles had really good, like David Wise music, put over the top of it and stuff.
4: Yeah, LGN's not there anymore, are they? Who am I going to upset? No, nah. uh, we were not fans. Uh, it's the- you. You work with people. they they're they're your publisher. Look, thirty plus years have gone past. Uh, the dust has settled. I guess there are some publishers that we have worked with that were just a complete ball. Like, you know, I, I, I would come in, I'll, I'll give you an example. And I, I, This this was an LJN one, but I can say this of some other publishers without naming them right now. You know, we, we were, everybody, we were UK based, right? So everybody we worked with was either Nintendo in Japan, Nintendo in America, or publishers, Acclaim, LJN in, in America, right? None of the phone calls that we ever had between Rare and anybody we were working with were in our time zone. And we'd get a lot of communic- communications that would come in on fax overnight. So a fax machine was something that you, you know, it would just banged out text down a phone line and printed out. So you come in in the morning and there'd be this long printout on a, on a rolled up piece of paper with all of the feedback from the publisher going, oh, could you make your game a bit better? Uh, and I remember <clears> coming in one more, and we get a bit jaded about it at this point because it was a lot of nonsense. I remember coming in one morning and, I forget. It was one of the NES games I wrote with Kev. I, in fact, it must have been Beetlejuice because that was published by LJN. Uh, super Offroad was Trade West. So I remember coming in one morning. There was a long list of, I, I'm doing quote marks. I'm doing air quote marks in front of you right now. <laughs> uh, improvements. Mm. Uh, and it was from some middle manager. I still remember his name. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I, I do not like this guy to this day. And in amongst them, this was typical, he said, could you change the background colour of the title page from red to blue or from blue to red because it will make the game better? And I read this out loud to a couple of people. I think Kev might have been there. I don't know. I read it to Tim. Oh, he'd already read it. And we're just looking at each other going, what a load of, oh, blimey. (laughs) This is where I would swear profusely. What a load of complete utter blah, 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 blah. Rubbish. Go away. And we knew what was going on. What was happening was this person was simply going back up his management chain saying, hey, the game was rubbish, but I've made it better. Thanks. We just could not wait to get away from doing other people's IP and working with those publishers in that way. I'll be completely honest with you. And, you know, Battletoads was the first, you know, there have been some other individual games, things like uh, Snake Rattle and Roll. I know there there were odd games which were just completely rare created. And, you know, write a game internally. We can self-fund it won't take too long take it to a publisher when it's finished but Battletoads was the first time that, that a, a franchise a real tangible thing that Rare would own to get us away from this business model mm. uh, was created and uh, we just wanted to get away from that it was just a lot of nonsense you know we yeah. wrote a lot of games and just dealing with some of these people was a bit of a a bit of a pain the really contentious one for me was actually at the end of Super Off-Road uh, sorry, I'm, if I'm rambling, I don't know how much time no, no. these folks have got. Um, at the end of Super Off-Road on the NES, it was the first full game I'd written for Rare. I finished it. John Ritman was there. We opened a bottle of champagne. But I remember we got feedback from Trade West, particularly from the developer, saying they'd seen the game and they didn't like it. And they were so annoyed about it that they put the two guys that had written the arcade one on a plane and flew them over. And I ended up sitting in a barn in a meeting room with the, these two guys one side of the table and myself and Tim and Chris Stamper on the other side of the table. And we had a real contentious meeting for about two hours. Mm. We were getting nowhere. Basically, they didn't understand why it looked as bad as it did in their opinion or it sounded as bad as it did in their opinion or, or everything else, right? They just hated it.
1: Mm.
4: And we, we just couldn't get anywhere with them. And then the penny dropped and I just turned to tim and chris and i just went hang on a sec and i started asking these two guys questions about the arcade board mm. uh that they'd written the game on because they had written on, on an arcade board which as you can imagine was way more powerful than an s uh and i just sat there and quietly listened and i asked them about the hardware uh, the, the screen architecture and the audio and, and how much ram it had and all this sort of stuff and you know the processor and at the end of it i basically said to them what you just described is architecturally very similar to the NES. It's just that all the numbers on the NES are smaller. I've got less processing power. I've got less RAM. I've got far fewer characters on screen. I've got far fewer pallets. I've got far fewer this. I've got far fewer that. And I, I made this little speech for about three or four minutes about why the NES, brilliant machine, but why it simply wasn't anywhere near as powerful as an arcade board. And they were quietly sitting there looking at me. And I stopped. and And one of them just said to me, did you write that? on that machine anyway afterwards uh, we went away happy and jolly tim shook my hand um and they were extremely happy to go back to trade west and say that the nest wa- nest game was absolutely fantastic and they loved it suddenly um, <laughs> but, you know when i pointed out that the entire character bank on a NES only filled a quarter of the screen if you used the characters once and so we had to repeat the characters otherwise you're going to get three quarters of the screen full of black space i don't know it's it's you just and. I worked with some incredibly talented people. Everybody was pushing the hardware as much as we could. And then, Mm. you know, we we had this sort of feedback from people that were critiquing what we were doing, either badly or not understanding what we were doing. And it's like, really, we're having to deal with these people? I didn't say Muppets there. I said people.
3: (laughs) So essentially, you just had to explain to them the architectural differences between an arcade board and an NES for them to really understand it. Um, yeah, yeah, which... they were
4: expecting me to write an arcade game, and I did on a NES, though.
3: Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot less powerful. Yeah. So, and I'll tell you, I just want to add to that. Tim and Chris Stamper
4: were, were doing arcade games in the, in the very late 70s, early 80s, and then they transitioned mm. onto, onto, onto the spectrum, set up Ashby Computers and Graphics. Their publishing label was Ultimate, and they effectively wrote arcade games on home computers. And that's why Jetpack and Lunar Jetman and a bunch of those games just stood right out. That's, that mm. was their mentality. And I've actually just realized, I haven't thought about this in all that time. I've just realized I, I basically, that's, that's what we were trying to do. Uh, mm. Everybody at Rare, everyone at Rare was was trying to do that. And basically I pitched to these guys, we have written your game.
3: So you mentioned Battletoads there being the first kind of big IP that Rare kind of came up with. How, how involved were you in that? Because the, the Battletoads Game Boy version was great. You know, it wasn't as difficult is the NES version, was that kind of like a conscious move to make it a little bit easier? What, you know, kind of talk to us about Battletoads there. This is
4: this, this is my standpoint on Battletoads, okay? There are five people that are responsible for getting the Battletoads franchise off the ground.
0: Mm-hmm. Tim
4: had been to the States. He'd been to a CES show yet again. He'd come back, and I my recollection is we were standing in a room. We were standing in Tim's office in the old farmhouse up the road at Rare in, in Twycos at the time. And Tim was there, Mark Betteridge was there, Kev Bayliss, myself. And Tim said, teenage mutant ninja turtles are big in the States. And there was a conversation that ensued. It wasn't very long. I don't know, 10 minutes, maybe. And by the time we walked away from that conversation, there was an idea in the air that we were going to do some sort of amphibious beat-em-up, but with other elements game. What happened was Tim who is an artist and designer, Mark, who's a uh, computer programmer, Kev Bayliss, who designed the look of those original Battletoads, started working on the NES game. And Dave was working on the audio. Dave Wise was working on the audio. And then what happened was, and I, I uh, sorry, I'm, I'm in the Retro Gamer Mag that was published last week. And I have told a bit of this story in that, but I, I can't remember how long the NES game took to, to write. It was probably about four, five, six months. Mm -hmm. But somewhere in the middle of that, we just finished uh, WWF Superstars, uh, which was the first Game Boy title that I've just spoken about. Um, And Tim came to Kev and I. uh, We were rocking and rolling on Game Boy. We just banged this thing out very quickly. And he said, would you do a port of this Battletoad game we're writing right now? And I said, no. And I said, look, if it's successful and we just do the exact same game on another platform, no no one has bought it on NES. is going to go and buy it on Game Boy. I've got to write this thing from scratch because it's a different architecture. Why don't we just write it for a bit of extra design work? Why don't we just write a new ba- a new battletoe game that sits comfortably alongside the one that Mark and Tim and Kev were writing, okay? And we would use some of the artwork, particularly on the first level. We we the first level of the the first Game Boy one is actually the same artwork effectively as the, as the, as the first level on the NES one, but we redesign the level. It's just it's just laid out differently, right? Um, so you start off kind of in the same universe, doing the same sorts of things, beating up pigs, getting the stick off the walker, taking its leg, and hitting things with it, right? Um, and then after that, Kevin and I riffed, and we just we just went nuts and went off in a completely different direction, uh, creating other levels. We had a we had a sort of a jet ski level, uh, yeah. which was a, a fast side scroller, which was basically based on the speeder bike level on the NES game. Yeah. So there was a closeness there, but there were there were subtle elements that were different on it. Uh, apart from the obvious graphical thing and the setting. And then there were some other levels that were just completely different altogether. So Tim, Mark, Kev, and Dave wrote the NES game. And about halfway through that, Kev, myself, and Dave wrote the Game Boy game or started the Game Boy game. um, And uh, that took, I don't know, a a few months. It finished after the NES game finished production. So basically the five of us wrote those two games. And then I went and wrote another three Battleto games after that.
3: So, in terms of the Battle Toads, because I grew up playing the Battle Toad games um, and had the Game Boy 1, and they were such tough games. When you guys were making them, did you know they were this hard? Did you know people were really going to struggle, you know, on, on the jet ski levels and stuff, on the the, the turbo, <clears throat> turbo Tunnel, I think it was called?
4: Right, so we started these in, uh, when was it, 1990, 1991, sometime mm. about then. So, you know, you look at these things today and you can have a view on them. But actually, at that time, our view of video games was everything that happened in the 1980s. Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe the really early stuff that came out in the 70s. And back in those days, you had the concept of three lives and you're dead. But in some games, if you were lucky enough, you could earn an extra life. Yeah. And, and a lot of games were structured around the concept of how far can you go? You just keep mm-hmm. playing them and they get harder and harder and harder until you can't go any further. You know, Space Invaders, mm-hmm. uh, is a, uh, Galaxians, th- those games never end yeah you just keep going it 's how many levels can you survive until you finally die and then you restart with three lives right so we you know our concept of a video game back then was rock hard, not very forgiving, limited opportunity to gain extra lives uh we didn't have restart points or anything like that. you know if you die, you went back to start level and had to start again and that was normal. It sounds mad today, but that's just how everybody looked you know that's just what video games were back then right yeah. um so we did want to make them hard. I, I, I have very good memory of when I was working on the first Battletoad game, as I was getting levels, because you know I'm, I'm not a great games player. Other people out there are much better than I, I am. But if I'm working on a level day in, day out, and I'm building it up and I'm constantly play testing it myself, I am getting quite good at it, okay? And it got to a point where the, uh, a level would be nearly finished. I don't remember which one it was. And I remember going to get somebody um, out of our testing department to come and sit next to me at my desk and play the level. And they'd play it a few times, and then they'd complete it. As soon as they completed it, I would go back in the software, I'd tweak some numbers, and I'd make it a little bit faster, a little bit less forgiving, a little bit harder. And then I'd get him to play it again. And we would play it, and I'd let him play it for a bit. And if he managed to beat it, I'd go back and I'd make it harder. And I kept going until we got to a point when I'd given him a version of the game where, sitting next to me, he could not complete the level, at which point I said, thank you very much, off you go, he'd leave, and job done. <laughs> and I, I, I can't remember what the process Mark was using on, on, on the NES game. It was just him and Tim doing it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but I remember deliberately writing the levels until we got to a point where a really good games player from our testing department could not actually finish the level. And, uh, and I thought that was, I thought that was mission accomplished. Mm. Well, sorry about the accessibility issues in hindsight we 're big <laughs> on accessibility these days we 're doing a lot of thieves back then weren 't thinking about it so much. It was how do we really annoy players and make these things as difficult as possible you know and i 'll t- tell you what um about some years ago, maybe ten years ago now I remember this this for me is a real badge of honor i can 't remember the guy 's name but the, the, the chap that started group groupon uh, he was the ceo of of a company called groupon mm. and he Retired, stood down, left the company, and he put out um, an email to. I think he, he went out public rather than just to all the all the staff there. And it was, you know, it was fairly short and sweet email. And it basically said, "Look, I started this company. I've I've loved working here. I've loved everything we've accomplished. Thank you, team." And then at one point, he said, "You know, building a company like this is every bit as hard as a speeder bike level on Battletoads." i thought yeah <laughs> right 20 years later and that's his childhood reference and he's
3: used it i thought fantastic that's brilliant that is also you know i don't know if you've heard of him but the angry video game nerd he literally one of the biggest kind of internet celebrities for retro gaming mm. b- essentially became famous because of the speed of bike levels and how angry he was getting at them as well and now he's one of the biggest youtubers out there which i love as well <laughs>
4: I don't think there's a real need to get angry at it. I, I hope he I hope he was not disparaging of its creators.
3: No, no, no. It, it was all for fun and stuff like that. But um you mentioned you went on to obviously, you know, make the sequels, work on the sequels to uh the Battletoads games as well. One yeah. one burning question I want to ask is Battletoads and Double Dragon. How did that come about? How involved with that were you?
4: Uh well I wrote I wrote Battletoads Double Dragon on the Game Boy. Um Brilliant. so So that was uh, the one I did on Game Boy was actually a port of the one that we did on. I get was that on NES?
3: I can't remember. It was on NES and Super Nintendo and Mega Drive. It was on. It was on. Yeah.
4: Oh, we did it on Mega Drive. I don't think that was handled in house. Somebody out of house must have done that one. Yeah. Uh, Okay. I do have a vague recollection that something was done on Mega Drive, and we were asking internally a while back, uh, did Rare do a Sega game? And I had a vague recollection we did something, but I couldn't remember how or why or when. Um, Okay, well, look, I've already said that we try to get away from all the other people's IPs and everything. Mm. Um, But, you know, Battletoads, um, we we had an agent in America, Joel Hochberg, and he, he, you know, uh, he was brilliant at what he did, and he he kept signing licenses to things. And uh, all the Battletoads games were published by Trade West, and they had the license to Double Dragon. And basically, there was a meeting at some manager level, I don't know, Tim and Chris had a meeting, Joel had a meeting, someone had a meeting mm. and and it was decided to put them in. The, I think they were just trying to boost the sales of Battletoad games. We kept on writing them, you know, it, this went on for a while. I think we were writing yeah. them for about three years really and somebody just had the brainwave, why don't we just put Battle? Uh, uh, sorry, Double Dragon in Battletoads? I'll be honest with you, I detested the idea. I, I'm not a fan of beat-em-up games. Kevin's mm. a huge fan of beat-em-up games. So, um, I, I, I hated the idea but mm. I did it. I thought it came off all right. Um, I don't know why somebody thought it was a good idea. It was pretty much, let's slam two IPs together and see if we can do some marketing off the back of it. It was a bit like Alien versus Predator, just at a yeah. lower scale kind of thing. You know, I, I do recall we, we never got any hassle. I was fearful at the time that we'd get some hassle off the IP owners of Double Dragon. They'd say, oh, you're mucking about with our characters. But I, I don't remember getting any negative feedback or anything that i had to go and do in particular so yeah. uh you know I, I wrote it in a few months uh kev did the art uh, dave did the audio hey it's it's uh i sound like a stuck record at this point that's pretty much rare was what rare was like back then same people doing the same projects lots of them quickly uh and uh you know that was that
3: i was gonna say it, it, it it's it's you know as, as, a, as a child playing that game because that was another one i played a lot of it's you think oh you know it's it, Battletoads toads and double dragon but as an adult it is a battle toads game with the mm. double dragon guys in it you know <laughs> it's not until oh, yeah, you yeah. go back and you play it and you realize that so it's good to hear that you know there wasn't much meddling and you know back no. and forth and like there was with lgn and stuff
4: no it was definitely our game that That's we good. put the the double dragons characters into it was simple as that
3: brilliant and um just last thing on on uh not on double dragon sorry just the last thing on battle toads What's the story behind the cancelled Battletoads Game Boy game? There was one that was 100% complete and it got cancelled. What's the story there?
4: I can think of somebody at Rare who would rather I didn't say anything right now. And I will apologise to him later. (laughs) Uh, We we already spoke about this in the wake of Rare Replay. In fact, we put out a video on YouTube. James Thomas, I think, um, told a bit about the story. Uh, He started off with, you know, it's mad enough cancelling a level from a video game but how about you know cancelling a whole video game Um, long story short we wrote Super Battletoads on the Game Boy it's the fourth one it was completely finished and then Trade West pulled the plug on the franchise the arcade one had just come out and just hadn't done very well uh, as far as they were concerned and they just went you know what this franchise is three years old the latest release didn't perform in the way that they wanted it to they pulled the plug and we had a finished game and it never came out um, I'd actually moved on to Donkey Kong Land. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were, I don't know, a few weeks or a couple of months into Donkey Kong Land at that point. And somebody came to me, might've been Tim. I can't remember who it was. Somebody came to me and said, look, Paul, it, it's cancelled. And mm-hmm. you know what? I'd spent a few months of my life. I'd it was. i worked hard on it. Um, it was some amazing stuff in there because by that point, we were massively heavily experimenting with the rendering tech, The the heavy levels of, frame animation that we could get which was leading into Donkey Kong Country and so that that Battletoe game actually instead of having hand-drawn three frame walks it had 16 frame walks that were rendered on a giant SGI machine overnight um, and there was stuff in there that looked absolutely spectacular uh, by the way sa- same on the arcade one we were using rendering tech on that one by mm. that point as well uh, and it's just that we'd got it to a stage that by the time DKC came out everything in it was fully rendered So, yeah, I I was annoyed. I was frustrated at the time. It was just, you know, bugger uh, was my attitude. But I was already into another game and we were starting to build a team around that, which got up to about 15 people to write Donkey Kong Land. And I I was just heads down on that. And um, it's a shame, but that's
2: life. Well, Paul, um, you mentioned Donkey Kong Land and uh, we're going to talk about that at another time. I I think we're we're, going to continue this. We've got something planned. Donkey Kong Land, Banjo and Kazooie, of course, and uh, Donkey Kong Country Free. But time has absolutely flied having you on, and as uh, some absolutely amazing stories. So thank you so much for coming on the Retro Hour. Uh,
4: you're most welcome. Thank you so much for uh, asking me, and I'm really sorry if I rambled anywhere or accidentally yeah. nearly swore.
3: You you did not ramble at all, and any swearing we can we can cut it out and bleep it and stuff. But that's been absolutely amazing. We do have about another 15 questions go but we are going to save them for next we're, time we're going to save them for later because yeah. they are for the next time they are all about uh, donkey kong and obviously you mentioned there the rendering and essentially how donkey kong country for the game boy with the yellow cart and everything is the most beautiful game boy game ever so i've got a lot to ask about that <laughs> <Yeah>. okay, <laughs> fantastic no
0: thank you so much yeah. paul